We're glad that you've decided to join us here. My name is Jordan, and I pastor our high school students. And uh, it's going to be a great Sunday. You're going to have to forgive me for being, like, on the cusp of getting over the weather, I guess. Like, I'm, I'm better, but I'm still a little nasally, so you're going to have to forgive me this morning. Um, but we're diving back into our series, God in the Movies, which is a series that we have been in since the beginning of January. Uh, we've been rolling through a series that essentially looks at a Hollywood film and looks at the scriptures, and we take a look at what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. Uh, last week we looked at the film Crazy Rich Asians and we paralleled that with Romans chapter 14 and we had this conversation about how Jesus prayed for unity for his church and, and Jesus had this prayer that the church would be as unified as Jesus and the Father are, so a perfect unity. And of course then we looked at the family dynamics going on and the self-sacrifice that took place in Crazy Rich Asians and we came to some conclusions that what's important for us is to self-sacrifice for the unity of the church, for the unity of the body of Christ. And today we take this idea of self-sacrifice and we take this idea of obedience and we go one step deeper. As the community of Soul Sanctuary here, uh, we are on mission to fulfill a vision. And that vision is to know God, it's to know freedom, it's to know purpose, and it's to make a difference. What we really like in our society is the purpose part and the make a difference part, right? We just kind of want to skip to there and leave our mark on the world. But before we can get there, we need to know God. And then in knowing God and having a relationship with Jesus Christ, what happens is we come to know freedom. We begin to be liberated by the things that hold us back, the things that drag us down. And so this morning, we're focusing on the no God part of this equation. We're focusing on the no freedom part of this equation. We're doing some groundwork before we, we get to identifying purpose in our life, before we get to really leaving a lasting mark, we got to know what it means to have intimacy with the creator of the universe. We need to know what it means to understand Jesus Christ's salvation and how that radically transforms our lives. Uh, today, if you were out in the uh, atrium at coffee time, uh, you would have seen a little sign that said, Donut Do Life Alone. It's our winter semester life group launch Sunday. Uh, so this is the time where we register or re-register for life groups that carry on for the next 13 weeks. It's Christians meeting together, not only Christians, it's people from Soul Sanctuary meeting together, that's a better way of putting it, who come together around common... Uh, around common activities, among the study of the Bible. Different groups have different purposes. And together for 13 weeks, you journey alongside one another. And, and you live the church together. And life groups for us, uh, we, don't, we don't see soul as a, as a church with life groups. Life groups to us are not another program. We are a church of life groups. That really life groups make up the, the genetic DNA of who we are. And this matters. I'm like spitting like crazy. Sorry, guys. <clears throat> On Friday, I was preaching at youth, and I was like a little worse. And like every P and T was just like hitting the girl in the front row. And I didn't say anything to her, but... <laughs> Excuse me. Where was I? <laughs> Life groups. 
Life groups are not a ministry or a program. We don't run programs as the church. It's not our intention. Programs don't accomplish what Jesus Christ came to do for us. Really, it's life together that accomplishes that. And that's why we believe that this church needs to grow bigger and smaller at the same time, right? It grows bigger as we reach more people with the life-giving message of Jesus Christ, but it grows smaller as we get together in life groups, community groups, cell groups, whatever you want to call them. And we get together and we study his word and we learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And in those groups, we begin to find liberation. We begin to find freedom in Christ. And it's in those groups that we then take next steps in our faith on route to identifying purpose, en route to making a difference in this world. So my encouragement for you, if you've been here at Seoul for a while, you've never joined a life, my encouragement for you is that this is a perfect next step. Now is the time, there is no better time than this, that at the end of the gathering, our team's going to be out there at the table, they'll have a donut for you, you know? Like, come on now, you'll get your sugar high on the way to lunch. And so, register for a life group, They'll walk you through all the options and all the groups that exist. And uh, we want to see you take next steps in your relationship with Jesus and and a next step deeper uh, into what he has for you. So, this morning, we're going to Hollywood and we're going to the scriptures. We look to Christ as he reveals himself through the scriptures and we look to Hollywood to reflect life in the 21st century with our film selection today. And together, we take time to determine what it means to follow Jesus and what that looks like. So we're going to begin today where we left off last week, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We ended last week with a congregational prayer. If we're talking about unity last week, when we were looking at Romans 14 and putting aside our preferences uh, for for the greater good of the body of Christ, then it just makes sense to pray together. And so... This morning, we're going to pick it up there. There is a prayer on the screen in three, two, one, there. Uh, There's a prayer on the screen. And in just a moment, I'm going to put the microphone down, and we're going to pray this prayer together. Aloud. Almighty God. And this is our prayer this morning. You can find your seats. We don't do God in the movies just for the fun of it. Through every movie selected, every message prepared, there is forethought and intention. This is not just to make our sermons easier to preach. I'd argue they're much harder. Uh, there's purpose here. We recognize that people learn differently. And I think um, my background, or one of my backgrounds, is in education. And in that, we, we recognize differentiated learning. If you're a teacher in here, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? So we, we notice learning styles. And here's the truth this morning. Not everybody comes into a room like this and can have their attention held for 30, 40 minutes by just a lecture, 
by a sermon, by somebody standing up here and talking. So we recognize the need to diversify our instruction and actually to engage other mediums. And that's something that Soul has been about, about since day one. And now get this. I dug up Reverend Dr. Jerry Machelski, also known as my dad. I dug up his doctoral thesis from 2004, okay? And here is what he said about using visuals as teaching tools. In 2004, this guy's a pioneer. All right, here it is. It's on the screen. The importance of technology is to understand that God used the visual to enhance the verbal teaching. That God did that throughout the scriptures. North American culture is producing people who learn visually by television, movies, and the internet. And the church must become multidimensional in our preaching and our teaching by incorporating technology. Not as a replacement for words, but in addition to words. Right? I mean, that's 2004. He's watching on live stream right now, cringing. I know it. But some of us, we don't sit well listening to a sermon or to a lecture, right? We are way more familiar navigating the Netflix menu than our Bibles. And you know it's true. And so this morning, we look to film. We look to Hollywood. We gather as the people of God, as the body of Christ, as the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we dive in as the church together to understand what it means to follow Jesus Christ in the 21st century. Our film today is La La Land. Would you watch the screens? Two options. You either follow my rules or follow my rules. Capiche? Thank you. I can do it a different way. No, that's, that's fine. Thank you very much. heard you play and I want to it's pretty strange that we keep running into each other maybe it means something I doubt it yeah I don't think so you could just write your own roles you know write something that's as interesting as you are what are you gonna do I have my own club is that gonna happen every time I think so you going to be a revolutionary if you're such a traditionalist? You're holding on to the past, but jazz is about the future. Maybe I'm not good enough. Yes, you are. Maybe I'm not. It's like a pipe dream. This is the dream. It's conflict and it's compromise. It's very, very exciting. I'll 
I'll admit, I never was a fan of musicals. I grew up in the house of a music teacher. My mother's music teacher still is. Uh, and uh, my brothers, all greatly musical, insane musical ability. I played the piano growing up. I went for bass guitar lessons. I even worked in a musical instrument store for a number of years. Like, I grew up in this, but I loathed musicals. Um, <laughs> my mom taught me piano. And so as any good piano student, I didn't really practice. And I had structured practice times, and I'd have to go. There was a piano upstairs and a piano downstairs. And so I go to the piano downstairs, and I would like play like the first like line of music over and over. And I was really good at the first line of music, just enough so that if mom or dad came to the top of the stairs to listen down, I could just play that line of music, right? You know, you could just pace it out, take it slow. Now... My mother, she taught my music lessons. And, and this, is, this is a unique situation. Maybe there's a couple of you in here who you come from very musical families or your parents instructed you in music. My mom knew I didn't practice. So she had no issue with making my lesson time my practice time. And like my mom has perfect pitch. Like she is a musician of musicians. So I will uh, be sitting at the piano. Not, not now, back then. I'd be like 12 years old, 13 years old, sitting at the piano. And she would actually instruct my lesson from the other room. And I would hear from the other room, it's a B flat. I'd be like, really? Really? She knows? And then so I would sit there and tears would pour down my face because I wasn't allowed to leave the piano. My parents were old school, okay? I wasn't allowed to leave the piano until it happened, until it worked. And then we wonder why I never loved music. (laughs) No, that's not true at all. Uh, Actually... I grew up to appreciate music and actually wished I, I maximized those practice times. Uh, and really, I learned a heck of a lot of lessons from those Sunday nights, late, sitting at the piano, making it happen. Now, I remember the opening scene of La La Land vividly. Because the opening scene of La La Land, Laura and I went on a date to a musical. I was, I, I was not looking forward to it, but I was like, Lauren loves musicals, so we went... I remember the scene vividly because it was the moment of my conversion. It was the moment where I went from avoiding movies like Grease and Mamma Mia and every other uh, Fiddler on the Roof, all those musicals. That, that was not me at any point. But this scene completely changed me. Now, the story of La La Land is very simple. It's Mia, who is your classic aspiring actress. She's auditioning all day for very few callbacks. She works at a coffee shop. And then there's Sebastian, who is a jazz-filled musician. He longs for the glory days of jazz that are long gone by. And then we have boy who meets girl. And then, of course, there's conflict. They fall in love. But today we take a look at La La Land from 40,000 feet. We're going from a bird's eye view today. We're going to take a step back from the actual events of the film and look at the mindset and the worldview and the dominant narrative of the film. What's it preaching at us implicitly? That's what we're looking for today. What are the factors that are at play that are motivating our characters to make the decisions that they make? So... I understand that musicals are polarizing, but this is my chance to convert all the haters.
called me to be on that screen and live inside a tree. Without a nickel to my name, hopped a bus, here I came. It could be brave or just insane, we'll have to see. Cause maybe in that sleepy town, I'll sit one day, lights are down, he'll see my face and think of how he used to know me. me. Find these hills, I'm reaching for the heights and chasing all the lights that In the canyons that'll never fade away The ballads in the barrooms left by those who came before They say we gotta want it more So I bang on every door And even when the answer's no My money is running low The dusty mic and neon glow are all I need And someday as I sing the song This hometown kid'll come along That'll be the thing to push him on and go, go I'm reaching for the lights and chasing all the lights that shine. I know what most of you are doing tonight. You're watching La La Land. Because you're going to walk out of here and all you're going to be playing in your head is Another Day of Sun. It's so good. I just like, I'm watching up here. I need like a soundtrack when I preach and it's going to be this. The, the words, sure, they're there. But there's something about the beat, about the rhythm, about the drive, about the, the beautiful choreography all the way down the on-ramp, right? It's about the one-shot cinematography. There's just something about this that is beautiful. Now, the words are one thing. The song sung, it tells of an aspiring actor or musician in Hollywood, right? They're waiting to leave their mark. They're waiting for that breakout opportunity. And the fact is, is that life gets them down. That, that sometimes the money runs out and things get tough and it's not all 
sunshine and rainbows and unicorns in Hollywood. But the sun, the sun is always shining in Hollywood. So keep your head up and and do whatever it takes to succeed. You're going to get it one day. That's the narrative of our film. Your breakthrough is coming soon. It's this fascinating race to utopia where we'll spend some time getting knocked around, tossed back and forth, but if all goes the way that it should, you and I, or whoever in Hollywood, will end up succeeding at some point. Watch the screen. Please stop sneaking into my home. You think mom or dad would call this a home? What are you doing? Please don't do that. Please don't sit on that. Are you kidding? Please don't sit on that. Don't sit on that. Don't sit on that. The hoagie Carmichael sat oh on that. Oh my god. The baked potato just threw it away. I can't imagine why. And now you're just sitting on it. I got you a throw rug. I don't need that. What if I said Miles Davis pissed on it? It's almost insulting. Is it true? When are you going to unpack these boxes? When I unpack them in my own club. Oh, Sebastian, it's like a girl broke up with you and you're stalking her. You're not still going by there, are you? That's... I don't believe that they turned it into a samba tapas. Oh my god, Sebastian! Samba tapas. Pick one, you know? Do one right. I have someone I want you to meet. I don't want to meet anyone. No, no, no I don't want to meet anyone. Dad gave you this? Yes. You like her? I don't think I'm going to like her. Does she like jazz? Probably not. Then what are we going to talk about? I don't know. It doesn't matter, okay? Because you're living like a hermit. You're driving without insurance. Does it matter? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Okay. You need to get serious. Well, then serious. I know a guy with a face tattoo that you should okay, see. Okay, low blow. Heart of gold. Get serious. Get serious? Laura, I, I had a very serious plan for my future. It's not my fault. I got shanghai Get shanghai You got ripped off. What's oh! the difference? I don't know. It's not as romantic as that. Don't say... Everybody knew that guy was shady, except for you. Why do you say romantic like it's a dirty word? Unpaid bills are not romantic. Call her. I'm not going to call her. And the thing is, you're acting like life's got me on the ropes. I want to be on the ropes, Okay, I'm just, I'm letting life hit me till it gets tired. Oh. Then I'm going to hit back. It's a classic rope-a-dump. Okay, Ali. I love you. I'm Factor Boxes. I'm gonna change the locks. You can't afford it. I'm a phoenix rising from the ashes. I'm a phoenix rising from the ashes. I mean, this is perfect. This is great. This is Seb. He is this jazz musician and and everything's fallen apart, but he still embraces this optimism, this romanticism, if you will. Uh, he, he longs for the days of jazz that aren't here anymore, but what does he want to do? He wants to open his own club. He wants to take over the jazz venue that has now regrettably become a samba, samba tapas place. But he's blind to the degree of his own obsession. He's blind to the fact that he needs somebody like his sister in his life. Never mind a romantic partner, he needs people. Uh, his ob- obsession for success has completely derailed his life. He can't figure out how to achieve success after his dramatic setback. 
And this is the dominant narrative of our culture today. Every day you and I are bombarded with messages that, t- that tell us that human beings are autonomous self-makers. We're told that we have the power to change our destiny. Now, it's a deeply humanist and capitalist ideal, right? If you watch Shark Tank, this is about living the American dream. You have, for myself, I have one foot in the world of entrepreneurship as my wife and I, we run our small business. And this is like every single targeted Facebook ad or Instagram ad on my feed is somebody telling me that I can do it. It's somebody selling me a program of success, right? With just enough tweaks, with just enough help, with with just rounding or trimming the fat or just making it happen. You can do it. You can be successful, And this idea of being an autonomous self-maker, that you do it by yourself and that you you do it for yourself, is dominant in our culture in every single sphere of life. And our society actually sees it as virtuous. That to be able to be autonomous, so you're working for yourself, you're making it happen by yourself, you're not dependent on anybody else, that is virtuous, that is good. And then to be able to go from rags to riches, from the bottom to the top, that in and of itself is good. We see it as that. But the problem is it's diametrically opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has wiggled its way into Christianity. It's wiggled its way into our churches. And it's deeply problematic. At first glance, you might not recognize what I'm talking about. This idea of autonomous self-maker. But there's many words for it. Independence. Freedom is one we use regularly. Not being a burden. Taking care of my own. Standing on my own two feet. Being a self-made man or a self-made woman. It's the I ain't need nobody approach to life. And the autonomy that we proudly proclaim as virtuous is actually the pinnacle of pride. And it's the opposite of humility. And we do ourselves and we do the body of Christ, the church, a great disservice when we embody it. When we buy into its narrative. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Acts. It's a passage well read by Christians in the 21st century precisely because it's a description of the church in its infancy. It's, a, it's, the, it's the church doing what the church was called to do. And last week we actually referenced this text when we talked about how the great unity of the church actually led to people coming to know Jesus. That they didn't go out and, and uh, hand out tracts or go pick it and, and tell them that people that, that Jesus is coming soon. That, that wasn't their approach. Their approach was to practice the unity that Jesus talked about, a perfect oneness among each other. And then what happened? The Lord added to their number 3,000 people who were being saved. So what happens is this Acts 2, Acts chapter 2, and it's a narrative. And it starts when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and the disciples are together and they're hanging out together, they're praying and the Spirit descends on them en masse and they begin to speak in tongues, in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to do. And people come from all around uh, hearing their own native language. They hear the glories of God being proclaimed in their own tongues. And so they show up 
And, and some of them think that it's just drunkenness and tomfoolery going on, but then Peter gets up and he addresses the crowd. And, and he, he goes back and he, he references the, po- the uh, prophet Joel, and then he references the Psalms, and then he makes a declaration that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah of Israel. This is a big deal. And so then Peter preaches, and at the end of his preaching, we hear that 3,000 people are added to their number. And then this, Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings, and they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The passage, it speaks about the church in its very infancy, like this thing just got going. And much like a newborn child, when you have infancy, you also have innocence. There's something pure and innocent going on here in the church. They're making it happen. They're following the commands of Jesus to do life with one another. And God met them where they were at, and the Holy Spirit filled them and inspired their meetings and and, and gave them a deep, unconditional love for one another. In many ways, uh, the, the church described here, while they were present on earth, they transcended the physical. Uh, the, there was a spiritual community here. There was a self-sacrifice which abounded, where physical needs became secondary. They prayed together. They ate together. They remembered together. They worshiped together. They invited others to join them. And the infant church described in Acts chapter 2 is everything but autonomous. They were insanely interconnected as individuals. As we flip ahead a couple pages, uh, we see that believers then were not just gathering together in homes. They're gathering together in multiple places. Check this out in Acts 5.42. Day after day. In the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. The apostles did not stop preaching and teaching. The apostles were subject to beatings. They were subject to, uh, to, to court saying, hey, quit it out with this Jesus talk. And they said no. So they went to the temple. There was a corporate gathering of believers like we are here today. There was something going on in the temple with Christians where the apostles could speak the good news about Jesus being the Messiah. And in the same way, they went house to house as families and as communities gathered together. And what did the apostles do? They, they taught what it meant to follow Jesus. Oh, we have interdependence in the body of Christ. We have regular meetings exemplified on display through the earliest innocent infant church. Now, the very nature of the church flies in the face of what we believe we can do by achieving by our own merits. 
It flies in the face of the things that our society considers to be virtuous. Instead of highlighting personal freedoms, the church highlights a perpetual individual sacrifice. Instead of independence, the church highlights radical dependence on one another. Instead of not being a burden, the church highlights carrying one another's burdens. And not just that, but having enough humility to allow somebody to carry yours. We pick up the film. After Mia and Seb have fallen in love, and we're going to skip over a couple of riveting musical numbers, which you will watch tonight, driven by the desire to succeed in Hollywood, it's Mia who has written and is now performing her own show. Uh, uh, Seb, who embraced this optimistic spirit, has encouraged her that if you're not getting the callbacks, then girl, do it yourself. Make it happen. And while Seb, all the while, as Mia pursues her goals that he's pushed her onto, he's losing his optimism. He's taking a well-paying gig, not playing the music that he loves. He has taken two steps back from jazz and is now pursuing what makes money. Watch the screen. Mia! Mia, I'm so sorry. Just tell me how it went. How was it? Don't help me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me make it up to you. Let me make it up to you, okay? I don't blame you for It's over. Wanting... What is? It's over. What? All of this. I'm done embarrassing myself. I'm done. I'm done. Nobody That's showed fine. up. So what? I can't pay back the theater. This is so... I'm gonna go home for a while. I'm gonna, I'll come see you tomorrow. No, I'm going home, home. This is home. No, it's not anymore. Sebastian prioritizes the band over Mia's show. Mia's taking a risk putting on this show. And then everything falls apart for Mia. Not only does Sebastian not show up, almost nobody shows up. And so then we're faced with this question. What do we do when the bottom falls out on our dreams? If you're totally brainwashed by our culture, which I will admit is my first response... Well, you get back up and you dust yourself off and you go at it again. But if we're honest, life doesn't always give us second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth chances. Sometimes we're stuck. So we have to ask the question, what happens when the bottom falls out? What happens when things don't work out the way we want them to, the way we dream them to, the way that we were told they would? For Mia, she spent every single dollar pursuing her dream. 
Every ounce of time, effort, and energy has been poured into this dream, and it fell apart. It wasn't what she was promised it would be. And in the comfort of the West, we've sheltered ourselves from the perspective fallout of our dreams. But if we're honest, there are many of us in this room right here, right now, that know what it's like for a dream to crash down and for you not to have the luxury to get up and try again. And so what do we do? What we see throughout the film is this. It's that autonomy leads to displacement. We lose a sense of direction. We lose a sense of belonging. Mia's quest to to have this one-woman show, Seb selling out his dream to make money, it's all representative of the world in which they find themselves. They have separated themselves from meaningful relationships with each other. And like many of us here today, they bought into a narrative which promotes the interest of self over everything else in this life. And it ultimately comes together and manifests itself in displacement with nowhere to belong, with no understanding of home. Their selfish pursuits have ultimately left them feeling empty and void. And when we look to Acts 2, we find a people who were dramatically interdependent upon each other, filled with love and filled with charity. And when we take some time to deconstruct and to critique our Western autonomy, we see that it's not all that it's cracked up to be. And we actually find that being a follower of Christ demands dependence in at least two regards. The first one is the believer's dependence on God. In Romans chapter 6, verses 20 and 22, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. What Paul doesn't say to the Romans is that you've been set free from sin and death, now go do whatever you want. That's not the message. No, our lives are to be lived as servants of God in response to what he has done in our lives, obedient to him in all things, and dependent on God in everything. In John chapter 15, verses 1 and 4, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. There's no branch that can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Jesus doesn't say that that you should just go out and try to produce fruit on your own. That's not his message. His message is cleave to me, have absolute dependence on me. And then you'll produce fruit. God's economy is greatly different than ours. Uh, We, you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, exist for God's purposes, not for our own purposes. And God interacts with us for our own redemption, but he also uses us for the redemption of others. 
And this flies in the face of the autonomous self that we propagate in our society. Uh, most of us try above all things to preserve our autonomy and our independence, our comfort and our lives. We shelter ourselves, we insulate ourselves, and by doing so, we isolate ourselves. God doesn't care about these things. He's willing to scrap them all for the sake of your growth. He's willing to scrap them all for the sake of your salvation. And in a society that is so fixated on personal freedoms, the fact that we are not sovereign decision makers of our own lives, it seems unjust to us. But we've been called into a life of radical and total dependence upon God. And that life is to be one that is wholly grounded in unconditional love. In 1 John 4, verses 19 to 21, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For, who do, who, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And this leads us directly into our second dependence that a follower of Christ is called into, which is a dependence upon each other. There is to be a mutual dependence present in the body of Christ. Watch the screens. Because I have good news. What? Amy Brandt, the casting director. Yeah. She was at your play. And she loved it. And she loved it so much that she wants you to come in tomorrow and audition for this huge movie that she's got. I'm not going to that. I'm not going to that. What? That one's going to be, no. That one's going to be. I'm sorry? That will kill me. What? 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 Shh! Stop! No! Shh! Shh! You have to be quiet. If you, you want me, to, then you have to tell me why you're not going. They're going to call this because, because why? I've been to a million auditions, and the same thing happens every time, where I get interrupted because someone wants to get a sandwich, or I'm crying, and they start laughing, or there's people sitting in the waiting room, and they're and they're like me, but prettier mm. and better at the because maybe I'm not good enough. Yes, you are. No. No, maybe I'm not. Yes, you are. Maybe I'm not. You are. Maybe I'm not. You are. Maybe I'm one of those people that has always wanted to do it, but it's like a pipe dream for me, you know? And then you you set it. You, you change your dreams and then you grow up. Maybe I'm one of those people and I'm not supposed to. And I can go back to school and I can find something else that I'm supposed to do because I left to do that and it's been six years and I don't want to do it anymore. Why? Why what? Why don't you want to do it anymore? Because they think it hurts a little bit too much. You're a baby. 
I'm not a baby. You I'm are. trying to grow up. You're crying like a baby. Oh, my God. And you have an audition tomorrow at 5.30. I'll be out front at 8 a.m. You'll be out front or not. I don't know. How did you find me here? The house in front of the library. Okay, great. What happens? Mia shows up at 8 a.m. Uh, at 8 a.m., Seb's right about to drive away, and she shows up. I mean, me telling you is much less dramatic and comedic than how it displays, but that's fine. We return to our film, and we take a little bit more of a literal approach to its events. It's after their separation, after displacement, after conflict, which we saw, there's this reunification, right? We loathe conflict in our own lives, but we dream of reconstitution. We dream of seeing things come back together in perfect order. And what is happening here in the, in the tiny part that you didn't see is the beginning of a reconciliation between Mia and Seb. Seb gets a phone call for Mia. And, and he sees an opportunity for Mia. And he goes out of his way so that Mia can embrace this opportunity. He gets in the car and he drives. And he spends the night somewhere we don't quite know, but he shows up bright and early at 8 a.m. to take her all the way back to Hollywood to make this dream come true. To give her one last shot, one last crack at it. He gets out of bed out of his slumping depression that he was in and he sees the opportunity for Mia to succeed and he sacrifices so that it happens. And last week we talked about how the body of Christ needs to be willing to personally sacrifice our time, uh, our preferences, our, our desires uh, for the unity of the body of Christ. Uh, but today we see that sacrifices is sacrifice, personal sacrifice, is not only tied to unity, but it's tied to personal interdependence. In Ephesians 5:15 to 21, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to, the, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Last week we illustrated that community begins with unity. But unity is nothing without humility. That community begins with unity, but unity is nothing without humility. 
when Paul tells the Ephesians not to get drunk on wine, what he's saying is he's telling them to leave behind their selfish pursuits. In this case, it's literally drunkenness. Because drunkenness is selfishly motivated. You don't get drunk for your friends. Instead, be filled with the Spirit and submit to one another. A community itself is reflected in who God is, in his very nature. It's community that is God's gift to us. It reflects his image as the triune God. It's not a recommendation. It's not a suggestion. Life together with other followers of Christ is a divine mandate. And the New Testament is filled with passages on how we are to treat one another in the body of Christ. Overflowing so. So buckle in. John 13, 34, a new command I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Romans 15, 14. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. 2 Corinthians 13, 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Corinthians 1, 10. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and in thought. In Galatians 5, 13. Serve one another in love. In Ephesians 4, 2. Bearing with one another in love. Do you know how hard it is to bear with somebody? Especially when you don't like them? James 4.11, some of you need to repent. Do not slander one another. Whoo! 1 Peter 4.9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. James 5.9, therefore confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And these aren't proof texts for me to illustrate a nuanced point. No, we can read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and see how God intended his people to live. Everything that we see in between is that God desired his people to live a unified existence. And if we are going to be the church that Jesus Christ himself commissioned, if we are going to follow what Jesus outlined and be inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so, if we are going to live in Christian community, then we must be dependent on God and we must be dependent on each other. There's no ands, ifs, or buts. There's no loopholes. This is what the scripture points us to. When we approach the scriptures, we see a narrative that cannot be ignored. You and I are in this together. If we are to follow Jesus, then we must practice. To practice, we must obey. And by obeying, we choose to depend on God instead of depending on ourselves. And we obey by practicing humility in the context of community. One of the ways that I believe 
we do this as the body of Christ here gathered is simply through life groups. And I will be the biggest advocate of a life group until I'm blue in the face. If you're sitting here and you don't have connection in this community and you're lamenting the fact that you come and, and you sit and you sit in your seat during coffee time and you don't meet anybody and you're lamenting that, then join a life group. There's a donut for you. Because in life groups, we learn something. We learn really good lessons about conflict. My friend was telling me at his church, I was hanging out with a couple pastors this week. My friend was telling me that uh, there was a uh, all moms group and a single dad or a, a dad kept showing up to the all moms group because he thought, well, like I'm on paternity leave and, and they're all on maternity leave and we kind of get together. But there was conflict that was created. I mean, we laughed. It was funny. But this is what, then, then what happens? Then that group has to figure out how to navigate that conflict. And we have a guide in Jesus on how to do that. I mean, another way is to serve. If we're going to be dependent on each other, let's serve beside each other. So that when you're serving and you got nothing left to give, who do you lean on? You lean on God or you lean on God and you lean on those next to you. And they carry you through so that you can make a difference. I mean, I think one of the ways that we combat autonomy, one of the ways that we combat this cultural narrative that leads to isolation, that leads to displacement, is through radical generosity. And, and I... I, I I mean, this isn't a part of my notes, but we were talking last night with some friends, and this came to mind. Lauren and I, we, we renovated our house um, from, like, September to December. I'm talking every visible surface. We did everything. And what stands out in my mind is on the day we moved in, we had friends offered to help us. Like, we were like, we're beginning demo. So on the day we moved in, we brought all our stuff into the house, and we started destroying things, like cutting down walls. We don't waste no time. I had a friend text me and say, hey, I'm coming over. So he and his wife came over. But Lauren and I sat on the floor in our bedroom, pining over the fact that we thought we were a burden to my friend. Like, one of my best friends who's been in my life since I was a kid. And we're pining over what text message to send that says, like, don't come if you already have plans. Like, I don't want to be that person. But what did they do? A radical act of generosity where they didn't bring up whatever their evening plans were. They recognized, I need help scraping the stucco off my ceilings. So they showed up. And I looked to other friends who, who it wasn't like, we're really good at this in our society. It's like, hey, I'm moving on Saturday. And it's like, great, if you need help moving, let me know right? And that's the convenient out. And we do that with everything. There were people who knocked on my door. They sent me a text message at four. They said, I know you're working on the house tonight. I'll be there at seven. Put me to work. That's a radical act of generosity. That's saying I'm shelving my desires for the night. I'm shelving my priorities and I am being generous. I am helping. And this is just a simple home renovation. I mean, can we do this in every area of our lives? Can we choose to live radically generous and therefore forcing dependence on somebody else? Because it's a beautiful act when the body of Christ begins to act like the body of Christ is supposed to. 
Do we have to be asked into something or can we just go do it? Can we just obey what Jesus has instructed us to do and go out and put on our boots and be generous? And I think it's in that radical generosity that we kill the autonomous self-maker. Up on the screen is our pastoral Caroline. This is something we do here at Seoul. So I'm going to instruct everybody at this point to pull out your electronic device. Everybody, let's go. Nobody's in this alone. You don't have to text a line. Actually, I did learn that there's a really cool app. We work on Planning Center here at Seoul Sanctuary. There is an app called Church Center. If you don't want to text a line, quickly download that app. It's awesome. It has all of our life groups, all of our events, everything. It's already pre-programmed in there. Church Center. Go find it. But for the rest of you, on the screen is our pastoral care line. It's a line that we man. And if you're looking for help taking your next steps in your faith, maybe you need help seeking out life group, whatever it might be, or you just need pastoral care. Like you need, excuse me, you need a touch from a pastor. You need a conversation. You need help. You need love. Not like that. It's not one of those phone call lines. Jeez. Anyways, you can text that number and one of our pastors are going to get back to you today or tomorrow, 24 hours. That's our, our, our turnaround time. One of our pastors are going to get in touch with you and this is a simple way to reach out if you need a connection point. Let's pray with each other. Gracious Father, we pray for your holy church. Would you fill us with all truth? Would you fill us with all peace? Where we are corrupt, would you purify us? Where we are in error, would you direct us? Where in anything we are amiss, would you reform us? Where we are right, would you strengthen us? Where we are in need, would you provide for us? Where we are divided, would you reunite us? In the name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Would you stand with me? In times of old, the one who gave a blessing would extend hands to do so. And those receiving a blessing would simply extend their hands if you would like a blessing. This morning, would you extend your hands with me? So sanctuary, as you go, may you go dependent. May you go obedient. May you go practicing. May you go submitting. And may you go together. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, and we'll see you next week.